This is the Do Better Podcast with Dr. Megan Miller and Joe Smith, launching you into the future of behavior analysis. episode, we are musing about the great debate, PFA and traditional FA. This is Megan. And this is Joe. This is where we blast off to the final frontier in search of improving ourselves in the field of behavior analysis. Thank you for spending time with us. Now let us begin. Hey, Joe, welcome to our musing episode on functional analysis. How are you today? I'm doing well right now. Uh, I'm super excited about this. Um, I didn't know that there was a great debate at all until <laughs> until uh, recently. So um, this I'm looking forward to uh, learning more and um, just to uh, hear your little musing today. <laughs> well, that's good. You you'll learn a lot, or or maybe not if I'm just rambling too much. Before I start on why I wanted to do this episode and kind of dive into our questions for today, I wanted to um, just kind of get your input as a more recently certified behavior analyst about functional analysis. You know, what were some of the things that you learned about in grad school, maybe if, if you're using it at all in your work in the schools right now, just kind of get a quick background about that. Yeah. Um definitely my background is a lot shorter um i had we uh, were instructed and taught about the traditional methods of fa um and the original process that iwata um created in school but after that um that was it i didn't know that there was anything else except for the traditional approach um in schools in my school center, we do not use like a traditional FA at all, um, just because of resources and time. Um, we're very constricted with what we can do. Um, and also it's a, it's a school setting too. So what we do is a lot of more interviews and observations and um, uh, processes like that to uh, develop an FBA or a BIP. Okay. That was kind of what I was thinking the answer was going to be, <laughs> but I just wanted to make sure our listeners knew as well. So you said you hadn't heard of the great debate until recently, and I don't, I don't even really know if it is a great debate. I called it that because when Ryan O'Donnell was setting up the podcast for the Daily BA, the Controversial Exchange, he was looking for ideas and I just needed a name. So I sent that in as an idea and we have met and we recorded on this topic. However, we're, I'm not really sure when that podcast is going to come out. If <laughs> so I'm not a very patient person. And I said, Hey, we have a podcast now. Let's go ahead and have the conversation and then we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. So today, basically we're going to talk about functional analysis. And to me, the debate that seems to be appearing to exist in our field around the work that Dr. Hanley and his lab is doing on pr practical functional assessment. 
And then of course the preceding work in the field on what we've just been kind of calling traditional functional analysis a la WADA 1982. So looking at some of, just some of the history and what are some of the issues that currently exist around function-based treatment in our field. Uh, I already kind of had you chime in on sort of where your background is, but do you have any additional thoughts about this topic before we dive into the questions? Uh, no, I mean, I, I'm just really interested in learning more uh, from you. Um, one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Behavioral Observations, uh, I love listening to Greg Hanley on that podcast explaining the PFA approach um, and just even our trainings that we had with them um, was just eye-opening. Um, so... And I, I'm just, I'm really don't know uh, where people have an, a, I mean, where, where's the debate? Like why, I mean, we have this great um, way of conducting FAs with uh, our learners. Why don't we use it? Yep. Okay, perfect. So we'll get into that hopefully. And it'll be interesting <laughs> to hear your perspective, especially with the school setting as well. So. So the first thing that I thought we would start with is just the historical significance. Where did functional assessment come from? I was really fortunate in 2019, Dr. Awada presented at FSU. They have a job fair every year, and then they have a speaker come in and do a presentation and meet with the students. So he was the presenter this year, and Dr. Hanley was the presenter the year prior. So that was a, a nice little contrast. Those students who were there for both years. That's really exciting that they were able to see both of those presenters. But his topic was sort of just giving some historical background on functional analysis and how it came to be. And a lot of it was a review for me, but also like a really good review because, you know, once you learn about something in class, you don't always remember it <laughs> <laughs> the long term. So basically he talked about how he was working at Kennedy Krieger and uh, they, or John Hopkins, he was out, you know, out that way and working at the hospital and they were having these cases of, you know, challenging behavior and they needed to figure out a way to address that. And he was tasked with coming up with a, a process. So he, the first example he gave is from Claude Bernard in looking at experimental medicine all the way back in the late 1800s. And just looking at that as a three-step process. So you have your observation, which is your accumulation of facts about symptoms experience and environmental conditions. You have your generation of a hypothesis, so a tentative guess about the causation based on the facts known about biological processes. And then you have experimentation where you ID the causes through controlled production and reversal of symptoms. So obviously for anyone that's familiar with functional behavior assessment and then the functional analysis, that's pretty much what we do, right? First you observe, you do your interviews, you generate a hypothesis and then you test using your, your functional analysis. So it was interesting to just kind of hear about, you know, that's a process from medicine in the late 1800s. And he basically, you know, took that and applied it with challenging behavior. And, you know, obviously there's the importance of that experimentation piece. So that observation shows us the facts, what's going on. We can see it for our own eyes, but until we actually test that hypothesis and have show some control over the behavior, turning it on and off. We don't have our truth about what's happening. So, uh, you know, obviously I think we can all agree with that. I don't think there's any 
anything to debate or discuss around that. But um, so, well, when I get into the other, the researchers and things, I guess I'll go into the, the differences that exist. So <laughs> keeping with the history. So that, so basically he talked about how he extended that to problem behavior. And at that time, back in the eighties, when he was doing this research, looking at psychiatric diagnoses, the science of behavior didn't have anything to contribute yet. At that time, we just had behavior mod, you know, and, and different procedures were being applied that weren't necessarily ethical or humane and not always effective either. So we didn't have a way of using this medical model to address challenging behavior. Psychopathology, like if you're thinking about Freud, looked at things like personality, the id, ego, superego, and there was a, a heavy emphasis on hypothetical constructs. So, you know, he applied uh, that, that model to just studying behavior, and that's how we came up, how he came up with the functional analysis and having the different conditions. So some of the literature, if we're talking about the history of functional assessment and functional analysis, that for our listeners, if you haven't read, would be helpful to look at, obviously, AWADA 1982, that's the first study that was published, and it's the one most people are familiar with that has those conditions with the FA really being done in a very structured format and showing that you can have functional control over challenging behavior. However, before then, there was the, the, one of the first studies in our field period, the Psychiatric Nurse as a Behavioral Engineer by Aon and Michael in 1959. And even in that, they didn't, they didn't obviously do a functional analysis, but they showed control over a behavior by using a reversal design to change the behavior of the, the patient in that study. So that's you know, a really good one um, to just kind of get an idea of how we our field started down the route of being able to turn on and off different responses. Um, there's, uh, there's obviously a ton of other research that's out there. Um, some of the more recent research that is existing and we'll talk about today, one of the first studies that Hanley published on what's now called practical functional assessment, but it, at that time he was calling it the ISCA, was um, Hanley in 2014. And then some of the studies that came out after that and from his lab, we have Jessel et al. in 2016 and Slayton et al. in 2017. There's a slew of studies on modifications to functional analysis. So you have uh, Bloom with the trial base. There's a latency pairwise. There's a lot of different modifications that have been made and shown to be effective with uh, modifications for the functional analysis that I'm not sure. I was kind of curious, Joe, did, did you all, when in your coursework, did you, do you remember studying and reading the various different types of functional analyses that are out there? Or was it mostly focused around IWATA? It was mostly focused around IWATA um, with his famous study. Um, we talked about, you know, how um, there are different modifications that you could do with a traditional FA, but um, I didn't even know about Hanley's work until um, I came to um, work with navigation that I learned that there was a whole, whole different, you know, procedure for FAs. Yeah. Yeah. So I was fortunate because at Florida State, there was a very heavy emphasis put on functional analysis is just the manipulation of environmental variables to turn behavior off and on. And we read 
a wide array of different articles to, to provide multiple examples of this is how, you know, so when I left Florida and I saw a one, when I got to Virginia, a lot of people didn't even know what functional analysis was. So they were still blown up. They were going to trainings with a WADA in, you know, 20, 2010 and like having their minds blown that that was even a thing that existed. <laughs> so that was shocking. Um, but also the idea, you know, a lot of people, when I would bring up FA, they would be, Oh, we can't do that. That, you know, those procedures from a water are too complicated, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, that's not an FA. <laughs> an yeah. FA is a manipulation of environmental variables. So that's been a, a really big misconception within our field that I encounter quite a bit. And I, um, I'm not really sure. I don't think that currently, I haven't looked at it. I didn't, maybe I should have in prep for this podcast recording, but in my recollection of the task list, it doesn't necessarily go into all of those variables either. It just says, you know, that you need to use functional assessment. So if you don't, but if, even in Cooper, they do talk about the different modifications and whatnot, but for whatever reason, we, people always hone in on the, the more traditional and more popularized methods that Awada published. So um, some other research that's been done re recently in functional assessment that we'll talk about a bit today, Fisher and his colleagues published in 2016, and then Greer and Fisher um, and colleagues published a study in 2019. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today as well. Something that I thought was interesting with Awada presentation at Florida State, he cited quite a bit of different research as well. Of like, you know, it was really interesting to hear because, you know, you read that study, the 1982 study and his work after that, and you know, like where that stuff went. But I love listening to researchers or practitioners talk about how they got to that point. Like, how did you even come up with this? And, you know, determining that we should have these four or five different conditions and looking at the function of behavior to, to treat, um, to, you know, address challenging behavior. So that was really interesting to hear. One of the studies that he referenced was on positive reinforcement from Lovas and colleagues in 1965. And they looked at uh, look, social deprivation and self-injury and what the effect of attention had on that. So then um, they saw that um, they, did a they did a reversal design and they had a contingent on approximations of self-injury. The nurse would deliver attention and they found that self-injury came back to baseline rates. So if they controlled the attention being delivered and provided attention with self-injury wasn't happening, then they, um, then the self-injury was lower. But if attention was delivered when self-injury was happening, then it was higher. And so then they were able to show that you can have this environmental determinant for, um, for a behavior. So that was all the way back in 1965, a long time before Awada's study was published. And then Carr in 1976 looked at negative reinforcement. So one of the first studies looking at task demands and then having aggression result and escape. Berkson et al. in 1965 looked at automatic reinforcement. So if there's a barren environment and you have stereotypy occurring and then you get sensory stimulation from that. So I think a lot of the times we maybe learn about certain procedures, but don't always understand the historical context of where those came from. And it can make us better practitioners if we do. Personally, I haven't even read or don't remember reading all of these studies either. So it was nice to, to hear about him talk about that. 
and just get that idea. But it also, uh, this will come up when I get into Hanley's work a little bit, but it gave, you know, an example of the WADA was facing a problem that needed to be solved. How do we address this challenging behavior from a medical model? And how he synthesized previous research to come up with a solution. He didn't just think in his head of, you know, oh, this thing, or he didn't look at one research study and say, oh, you know, this is what we need to do next. Like it was a synthesis of looking at different articles that were out there and seeing, oh, you know, LOVA saw attention could be something that contributes mm -hmm. to challenging behavior. And Carr saw that escape could be something that contributes to challenging behavior. And Berkson saw that sensory stimulation could be something that contributes to challenging behavior. And, oh, wait, those are conditions that Awada had in his 1982 study. So now we know how he came up with those, right? It wasn't just yeah. like magical that he thought of <laughs> research studies that were already out there and showing a possible um, influence from those variables and said, what if we put these together and, you know, ran conditions to see which one is most contributing to this challenging behavior that's occurring. So what are your thoughts about this history? How much have you, how much did you know about that prior to talking? And like, do you have anything to add about what I discussed so far? And my recollection, recollection, of course, I have a hard time saying that word, but just um, thinking about the past and what I have learned, um, I don't think we really dived into the complete history. Like that was, amazing like i i didn't know that we had such a uh rich history of like all these comp uh different procedures um in, in our field and um that people have done so um and by the way it is on the task list fas are on the task list it's, oh yeah it's on the task list but i don't yeah. think it's as descriptive as it could be in that we should know about trial-based fa and pairwise and um, you know the PFA like there's not there's not a, a real in-depth description of the variety of ways that an FA most people when they see that on the task list they go to OWADA. Yes yes <laughs> when I was studying for the um, the exam that's what I focus on was IWADA's procedure and that was it yeah. I wasn't focused on the PFA uh, model at all Right. And to be, to be honest, because when I was training, so when I was at Ohio State as a graduate student, I was, one of my GA positions, because I was already a BCBA, was to oversee the supervision of our master's level students for their field work. So I set up a few different activities for us to do. And one, because you don't typically, in you know, general practicum placements, it doesn't come up that often that you get to go through a thorough FBA, FA process. So that was one of the big projects we worked on as I did group meetings with them and we went through, you know, the Cooper book and what it says about functional behavior assessment and how FA is part of that, you know, one of the steps within FBA because that's something that a lot of people get confused about. They kind of think about FBA and FA as two completely separate things when really it's FBA. FBA mm -hmm. is here and then FA is like one step of the FBA process. So we did a, a lot of discussion around that and we walked through, I made up like a case example and we went through the whole process. But one of the, the things that I constantly had to do, because at that time that was in 2013, 2014. So Hanley was just starting 
to publish and present on the PFA. And from my own experience at Florida State and just with clients in general, I had my practitioner input. So I wanted to train them on, these are the things as a practitioner that will be most effective for you with your clients. But when you're studying for the exam, make sure you know this way. <laughs> because yeah. what I was teaching them about, if they answered questions on the exam based on that, based on the practitioner reality of things, they wouldn't necessarily get the answer correct. So yeah. I had to like make sure it was really clear that these are the things that you'll find work best when you're in a home or in a school. But when you're studying for the exam, make sure you're focusing on Cooper and what's there because the exam hasn't necessarily been updated with this, you know, newer research that's been coming out. And I don't know what that delay is. I guess that's a whole different podcast episode we can have <laughs> about that. Um, but that was, you know, so I tried to make sure they got both. So when they went out as practitioners, they would be able to individualize and decide, you know, what process would be best for their client based on what was happening. So. Yeah. Well, it's coming out in the sixth six edition of Cooper, right? <laughs> yeah. I do know that the newest Cooper does reference the PFA. So that's good. Okay. But I don't know um, because the way that the, you know, just testing is not, it's not specific to the BACB. It's just the, the nature of the beast. Uh, there has to be the way that the test questions work and all that kind of stuff. They're like field tested and they have to go through this whole process. So for that all to catch up to like some of the advancements in the research, it's obviously there's a bit of a delay. Yeah that happens. So like, even when I, when I took the exam, um, you know, Jack Michael published and talked about motivating operations for years and it didn't really get that popularized. It wasn't even in the first edition of the Cooper book. So when I took the exam, there was very little on the exam about motivating operations and like CMOs, R's and T's and all that kind of stuff. And I do, I don't know because I haven't had to take the exam again, but I know like as the task list got updated, obviously that got more detailed and the questions likely got updated to include more information about that kind of stuff. So there, you know, it is good as the field evolves that's reflected in the task list and the, the test, but there's obviously a little bit of a delay that happens there. So, okay. So finally, I don't even know how long we've been talking, but <laughs> let's talk about what is this great debate? So yes. again, this is, you know, maybe it's just my own issue. I'm not really sure. I guess we'll find out from our listeners, but I have seen two different viewpoints in our field right now. So there's what I call Fisher and colleagues, and I don't mean it to call out Dr. Wayne Fisher. He is a phenomenal researcher and he has contributed so much to our field in the work that they've done, the, the publications that they had, especially in the late 90s and early 2000s on addressing challenging behavior. So those contributions are phenomenal. However, I have encountered his research and research from his colleagues, as well as when I'm at conferences, talking to people who I, you know, ask about if they've kept on top of, you know, Hanley and the advancements there. And these are people with very well-established backgrounds in addressing challenging behavior and they refuse. They say it's not necessary and that kind of stuff. So that's why I've created these two different viewpoints, if you will. So it, for ease, because when you look up the research, it's Fisher and his colleagues publishing, and then Hanley and his colleagues publishing, I've said those are the two viewpoints. But basically the Fisher and colleagues one argues for the importance of identifying a single reinforcer within the analysis. So they argue that it's important to have 
you know, just escape or just attention and really being able to like drill down to just one single reinforcer. The, if you look at their research, the, a lot of the research that's being cited is from the 60s and the 70s to support that the single stimuli often maintain a challenging behavior. So to me, that's interesting because it's 2019. So what we know about behavior now compared to what we knew about behavior in the 60s and 70s is obviously different. So where are the citations from, you know, the last five years to support that idea? I haven't seen anything. They're concerned about an interaction effect when using the ISCA or the PFA. So the idea that if you're, if you're not drilling down to just that one variable, that one potential reinforcer, then there could be an interaction happening, which is kind of the point. <laughs> so I don't really see why that's a problem, but um, they also conclude that traditional FA is superior based on their 2016 and 2019 study. And we'll, we'll go through that. We'll break that down a little bit more, um, you know, what those studies are and, and what they found. They also argue that the ISCA did not produce more robust effects than traditional functional analysis. And there's a, a behavioral observations podcast episode where Fisher talks about conducting a traditional FA first and then modifying based on those results. So I'll dive into those, uh, some of those points a little bit more as we go into this discussion. And then Hanley and colleagues is what I'm calling viewpoint two. So with the, with the research that they're doing, what they're looking at is synthesizing each component of the three-term contingency, presenting multiple evocative events at once, and looking at including precursor topography, so reinforcing as soon as a precursor happens, as opposed to waiting for the, you know, whatever intensive challenging target behavior you might have. They're, they look at combining outcomes that tend to occur together, and the argument is that it increases precision in replicating the natural environment. So if you think about what, when we learn about traditional FA, it's usually in like a sterile room with nothing in there besides what was, what's needed for the condition you're running. But with the work that Hanley and his colleagues have been doing with the PFA, they are often in just like a house <laughs> or if they have, if they're doing it at the center in their rooms, they have it set up to be, look more like a, a, a a playroom or something like that. So there are two key factors with the PFA that, well, at least I don't, they haven't done a component analysis on this yet, but just from my attending trainings and reading the research on it, what I think the two key factors are, one is the interview. So having this open-ended interview to help explore and figure out what those variables might be. And then the second key factor is that development of your test and control conditions that turn the behavior on and off. So using the interview, you make a hypothesis about what the, all of the potential reinforcers might be and you create your test and control conditions. And if after a few running, like you run those a few times, if you're not seeing the behavior go on and off, then you stop and you adjust. It's not something you do for like 50 sessions and hope that something will change. <laughs> So those are, those are the two viewpoints that I've kind of summarized based on my reading of the current research. Do you have any questions about that or anything to add? So my, uh, with the conduct conditions, okay. Um, I know there's attention, uh, tangible. There's, um, I'm drawing a blank now, uh, <laughs> attention, uh, attention 
So attention, tangible, yeah. escape, and, and alone are like yeah. the four main ones where they're looking for those functions. And then you'll usually have a control condition that's often called play now, where you just have like all the stuff in the environment and, and they just get free access to the reinforcers. And then in the school setting, like I keep on hearing um, uh, administrators and teachers saying that there's a controlled uh, condition as well. Yeah, so, and that's where things can get a little bit confusing because if you look at Awada's and early research, it, there was a condition called the control condition, but it wasn't what the school administrators are talking about. It wasn't looking yeah. at does control function as a reinforcer for this person. It was the control condition, like when you're doing a, um, a study and you want to have your, um, your test condition where you're testing out a variable and you're control condition where the environment is well controlled to show that difference of effect. So in the functional analysis research, when we hear the word control condition, that means all of the reinforcers that could potentially be um, influencing the behavior are just freely available to the person. And then if you hear like school administration or so sometimes just like lay person talk about control as a function of behavior. That's like a whole separate thing that we could probably also do another podcast episode. Because <laughs> that's a whole right. other debate that exists it in is. the field right now too. Yeah. It is. Anything, any other thoughts about this part? No, I think that there are definitely two camps. And um, I'm not going to say which side I'm on, on. I'm on, but I mean, there's, I mean, I can definitely tell you that um, there's definitely pros and cons for both. Yeah. So I'm sure the listeners, if they haven't already, will be able to figure out pretty quickly which side I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But in going into our next question, it kind of comes up. So Megan's concerns with Fisher's rebuttal research. So I'm calling it rebuttal research. A Fisher doesn't call it that. And I doubt Hanley would either, but that's how I perceive it as a practitioner in the field, reading these studies that have come out, the 2016 and the 2019, and just the discussion that was on the podcast episode with Matt Sicoria, they seem like rebuttals to me, seeing the presentations that have happened at ABAI, hearing comments that have been made at places like Calava by Dr. Wada and things like that. I don't see this as an academic pursuit of, um, effective intervention for our learners. I see it as, hey, I've done a lot of research in this area and your research is now contradicting my research and I don't like it. So again, that's just my perception. That's just my opinion of how things are going and people will probably get upset about that. But, you know, it's, I need to lay it out there as like, that's how this is coming across. So if that's not the intent, then maybe change what you're doing. Um, so I'll dive into my concerns. So first, okay, let me talk about this. I did a challenging behavior webinar back in September of 2018, where I have about 20 or 30 minutes in that webinar going over this debate as well. And I talked about the 2016 Fisher article compared to Dr. Hanley's current research and sort of my concerns with that. So if you want more information about that, check out the challenging behavior webinar it's on our do better resource for free and i can send you the uh, or i'll put it in the show notes you know how to access that 
So for today, what I wanted to talk about is this new article that came out in 2019. So Greer is the main author on this, but it's Greer and Fisher and his colleagues. So because uh, my initial history with this is <laughs> aimed at Fisher, I will probably end up saying Fisher most of the time. However, so this, so for now, what I'm going to talk about is my concerns with the 2019 study. So if you haven't read it yet, you don't necessarily have to, to, to listen to the rest of the podcast, but I definitely recommend checking out that study. And in the show notes, I'll include the reference and all that kind of stuff. So my big, my biggest point that came across in the 2019 study and the 2016 study there seems to be a failure by the, the viewpoint of Fisher and colleagues to fully understand ISCA or the PFA. So I have, I discussed that in the challenging behavior webinar when Dr. Fisher discusses this button study that they looked at shaping up a challenging behavior by hitting a button. I don't want to go into a lot of detail on that today because I have enough to say on other topics, but <laughs> um, check it out if you want to. But from the 2019 study, the article states that isolating, and this is in quotes, isolating the contingencies reinforcing problem behavior, however, is likely to provide more precise information when designing function-based interventions. So they make that statement very early on in their article, but there's no support provided. There's no citation given, nothing. So it's just this assertion that's made that isolating the contingencies is more precise. But again, nothing to, to, like, no evidence to support that. So what I, my question is, like, how is synthesizing to really pinpoint the multitude of variables interacting on a response not more precise? Just because you may be able to, you know, cycle down and pinpoint that, like, a certain variable is contributing to a challenging behavior, it's very rare that that's the only variable contributing to the challenging behavior. Being able to synthesize and figure out the variety of variables that are contributing to a challenging behavior seems much more precise to me. Because if I only you know, get down to that one variable and I control that, but I'm not controlling the other possible variables, that's not, then I might not see a behavior change, right? And when we think about for ourselves as adults, like how many things that you do that you know you need to change are only controlled by one variable. Highly unlikely, right? <laughs> welcome so, to, uh, yeah, welcome to um, a special ed education teacher in BSBA's life, like yeah. right there. Right. It's like in the school setting, there is no way I can isolate a specific um, reinforcer at all. Right. Yeah. And so then the other question I have for that is like, where is the research comparing treatment based on a traditional functional analysis and the PFA or the ISCA? So far, the only study I've seen that compares treatment, and we'll get into this because the 2019 article does a comparison, but no treatment was provided. So the only one I've seen that compares treatment and how like when you do a traditional FA and treat based off of that and you do the ISCA or PFA and treat based off of that, what are the differences? And Slayton's article is the only one I've found so far on that. So, uh, and of course, with Slayton's article, she found that she's, you know, part of Hanley's research team, but she found that they were able to better treat when they use the PFA. So, um, but of course, we need outside research to replicate yeah. that too. But that's still, that's the only study that I could find based off of that. I think one of the other important points, and I do talk about this in the challenging behavior webinar too, 
is when, so we did that historical perspective of Iwata, right? Back in the 80s when he was first studying this and applying the medical model, he was working in institutions. So he was working with very significantly affected um, individuals who maybe had very little language. And we all know, based on the research on language, and if we want to go back to our VBRFT podcast episode, that the more complex our language gets, the more variables there are. Now we have a whole slew of different things that can interact with one another and act upon us and influence our responding. So if we're, you know, just looking at for maybe more significantly affected populations who maybe don't have as much language, maybe a traditional functional analysis is, is fine and well suited for that population. We don't have any research to say one way or the other right now. Um, and it may be that once you get to a certain language level and you have a certain amount of um, communication happening, it doesn't have to be vocal communication, any sort of type of communication where you have generative learning occurring and derived relational responding happening and people have you know, more private thoughts and inner behavior occurring that, that a synthesized analysis is necessary because at that point there's probably a lot of different variables interacting with one another to influence someone's behavior. But again, we don't have any research comparing that and like looking at you know, what, do, what influence does the profile of the learner have on which type of analysis, and it might even be that a trial-based FA is better. Like, there's nothing to say, oh, we have these different ways of conducting an FA, and for this learner profile, this is the best way to do that. So if we want to do research in FAs, <laughs> like, why not study that? Why are we trying to say, like, my way is better than your way with not even looking at the relevant variables that yeah. we at play, you know? So that my point the first point was supposed to be that they don't seem to fully understand the ISCA, but I didn't even really talk about that yet. So I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I just haven't yet. Um, so in the, this is where I start to get into that. So in the 2019 study, the way that they had it set up is they, they did this, what they called a structured observation. So in the, in the way that a PFA is set up, if you look at the materials from Hanley's website, they, he has a whole entire packet that you can download for free that provides instruction on how to implement a PFA. And the, the PFA process includes the interview, sometimes an observation, and then the test and control running of those sessions. In their observation, they do a very like naturalistic observation. Well, I don't know if it's because of people's history as researchers and, you know, when, when you're the bulk of your life is spent as a researcher, it's well ingrained that you have to control the environment to you know, show that your study did what you said it did. So instead of doing just like an observation where they see the child in the natural environment, they did what they called a structured observation. So they implemented specific conditions instead of just in, uh, observing in natural environments under the context and variables that are likely interacting around the problem behavior. The article states, in quotes, thus the procedures attempted to standardize the clinical observation described by other researchers. So again, I get that that like their history as researchers, they want to like standardize things, but it completely <laughs> defeats the purpose <laughs> of the observation. So my question is like, are they really this far removed from intervention, from being practitioners that they can't handle just seeing what happens in real life? Like, when we are out in the field, boots on the ground, working with our learners, we're dealing with real life conditions. We are not dealing with 
a very structured, you know, situation where right now I'm going to observe how you do if I'm providing attention. And now I'm going to observe how you do if I provide escape. That's not how it works. In real life, there's a bunch of stuff happening at one time. And unless we see the behavior under those conditions, how do we know what's going on? So that to me was like one huge red flag that they, that they're completely missing the point of the PFA. You don't, it's not that it's on purpose, less structured. <laughs> so trying to add structure to it is going to influence your outcomes. And they, they didn't do a comparison. They didn't do a structured observation and then a more like loosely done observation. All the study did was focus on a structured observation, which in and of itself would be a confound for really understanding. Because the whole point of the study, which I guess I should have opened with, was to compare if we do a PFA versus if we do the traditional FA, which one better isolates the function, which one can determine the function better. Um, so when they did their PFA, I'm using quotes because I don't think it was a PFA, when they did the PFA condition, they did this structured observation. The fact that they did that in and of itself shows that they don't understand the PFA because they would have just done the observation the way that Hanley's group has been doing it. So um, that's an issue. Then I just, there's like all these, I'm just like, we talk about Megan's musings. It's just me talking for like hours. They also relied on the interview from the functional analysis. So they did an open-ended interview like described in the PFA. But if that didn't work, then they use the interview from the functional analysis to pinpoint their variables. Now, that doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> the whole point of the open-ended interview is to identify your variables. So if you're doing an open-ended interview and can't identify variables, you're not asking the right questions. And instead of, you know, reflecting on that and saying, oh, maybe we didn't ask our questions properly because we should have been able to pinpoint variables based on this interview in and of itself, they just used what their history um, would show them and they relied on the interview forms that they did for the functional analysis instead. So again, they're claiming to be looking at the PFA and whether or not it can identify function, but they keep bringing in <laughs> these aspects of traditional functional analysis. They're adding a standardized observation using the traditional functional analysis conditions. And now they've added the interview forms from a traditional functional analysis. So if you really want to compare the PFA to a traditional FA, you do them as they're designed. You don't do a PFA with influence from a traditional FA, which is essentially what the study did. Okay. Any questions about like all of that stuff so far or thoughts to add? No, it, it's just mind boggling that things aren't done um, efficiently and there's, uh, there's things that could be done better. Yes, yeah. Okay, so now we get into the real meat of my issues with this article. So they make the assumption that um, that the PFA or the ISCA was wrong if their FA was different. So if if their FA said that the um, you know it showed a graph that had escape as the highest data path, then the ISCA showed um, you know escape and attention as the highest data path. They just made this automatic determination that the ISCA was wrong. And it's like, where in the research does it show you can just conclusively say, 
what just because traditional FAs existed first in the literature, it gets to be the gold standard. I mean, it is like functional based, function based treatment is the gold standard. I'm not arguing that, but there's nothing within function based treatment that says the traditional conditions from a WADA's 1982 article are the gold standard. Again, there's been a whole slew of various ways of conducting FAs that have shown to be effective. So to, to just assert that this one is the default correct answer is mind boggling to me. So they state in the article, quote, the ISCA synthesized 30 individual contingencies, 15 of which, so 50% were functionally irrelevant. But their conclusion is based on it being functionally irrelevant because their FA was different. How do we know your FA wasn't wrong? Like just because your FA said escape was the thing doesn't necessarily mean it was accurate. You didn't provide treatment, so we don't know. So, yeah. And going back, I mean, we're a science. And as a science, you need to continually grow and ask yourself, is this the best method? And if the research is showing you that there's different methods or different processes that work well, we should be going with that. I mean, doctors don't go to, um, do doctors don't use the same process that they used back in 1900s because they have much better methods now. Yep, exactly. Thankfully. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're not going to get leached, right? When we need to have. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyway. Um, yeah, so, so my questions about this, just why, um, I already sort of mentioned this, but just because this is how, you know, functional analysis has been done in the past doesn't make it right. And when we look at the actual FA data pass, they aren't even clear. So um, I have some examples that I'll talk about, but if you go to the actual article, look at this, the graphs in that study, and they assert certain data paths and like say escape or attention. But when you look at the, the data pass, there's some overlap and there's some discrepancies where it's like, I don't even know how you came up with escape being the primary, um, you know, function because there's no clear decision rules on like how they decided that. So combining that with the clear lack of understanding on how to choose the ISCA conditions, the PFA conditions, it's clear that there's a bias in this research. <laughs> They're not setting out to like objectively, you know, look at, oh, you know, Hanley's making some advancements in what we're doing for function-based treatment. Let's see, you know, how they really compare. There was clearly, to me at least, as a practitioner and a reader, there seems to be a clear bias. Like how, how can they even make conclusions about ISCA when they're coming at this with like 20, 30 years of research background on traditional FA and then try to act like this is an objective analysis <laughs> of <laughs> a newer way of doing this? Um, some of the problems in addition that come up. So the researchers are the ones determining the contingencies in this study, right? So some of the other possible explanations, if the ISCA, the PFA, had a different conclusion on function than the traditional FA, some of the possible explanations for that would be they didn't do the interview correctly. And we've already talked about that. Clearly, if they were resorting to pulling in interview information from their, fu their functional analysis, the traditional functional analysis, because they couldn't pinpoint variables from the open-ended interview, maybe they didn't do the interview correctly, and the conditions they set up for their ISCA wasn't even correct. Another possibility could be that the FA was wrong, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so again, they don't even discuss that. It's just assumed that the information that they gathered from the FA is correct. 
Um, there could be other possible explanations, but those were the two that jumped out at me, and I'm not really sure why those aren't discussed. Well, I think I know why those aren't discussed in the article, but, um, but they definitely could have been. Um, Jessel and Slayton are both researchers from Hanley's lab that published, and both of their articles show clear on and off for their ISCA. Like, it is insane when you look at these graphs. It's like, is this real? Like, is this real? Like, how did you do that so well? turn these behaviors on and off so easily. Um, so when, and when you look at the graphs in the 2019 article from Greer, the, that that's not the case. Like when you look at the ISCA graphs, so that some of them are kind of all over the place. So again, um, that kind of begs the question of like, did they even implement the PFA process correctly if they're not showing these same clear on and off patterns that Hanley's lab has been able to demonstrate? Now, that also begs the question of maybe we need better dissemination of the technology for how to properly do the interview to create these on and off conditions. Because it doesn't really matter if Hanley and his students are able to do this and like produce studies showing clear on and off. If other people can't replicate that, if they don't, can't take what is being disseminated about how to do those interviews and then create similar situations where they're very easily turning behavior on and off as well, then that totally defeats, you know, the utility of the PFA. So now that's something that could be studied, right? Like how do we yes. make sure these interviews are being done correctly um, so that we can see these clear on and off trends in the data. Um, in this article, they only succeeded in doing the clear on and off in four out of the 12 cases that they did the PFA with. Now, I would argue based on reading the descriptions in the article, it's mostly probably because they didn't implement the steps correctly. But until that's studied further, we don't know. Um, yeah. But to only have four clear on and offs, that's concerning. That 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 to me shows a, a weak a potential weakness of the PFA if people can't replicate that interview process. Um, okay. So some other issues I had with the article, there seems to be um, discrepancies between their, they did the interview to try to come up with hypotheses and then they did this observation, but there was a discrepancy often between what they found in their interview and then what the observation showed them. Now, part of that could be because they did the structured observation and they weren't watching the, the person in their natural environment. But in only three out of 12 of the cases did their open-ended interview match their observation. So and when that happened, they used what they gathered from the interview instead of synthesizing the different variables. Um, I think one of the big reasons this probably happened was because they structured the observation. So we talked about this already. Instead of watching the person in their natural environment and observing that way, they created these structured conditions that essentially replicated an FA, a traditional FA. So where they presented like an escape, attention alone in a structured way as an observation. So obviously doing that in and of itself can be a confound. It, you know, you're not seeing it under natural conditions. They also, um, again, to me, failure to revise the conditions based on both. So failure to see, oh, um, we don't have a clear understanding of the variables affecting this behavior before running their test and control conditions shows a lack of understanding of the process. Like if you're someone who's really bought in and wanting to do a PFA with fidelity, you wouldn't run your test and control condition until you have a clear understanding, a good hypothesis of these are the variables interacting on this behavior. Um, 
the article also doesn't explain the conditions very clearly. So when you look at Hanley's research, whether it's, you know, the articles where he's first author, if it's Jessel or Slayton or some of his other students, um, they give very clear descriptions of the test and control conditions. So you could really replicate it. If you had a similar learner, you can replicate it pretty easily, but you at least have an idea of like how in depth they went on synthesizing those variables and seeing like, oh wow, this is like how all of these variables were interacting for this learner. It's basically impossible to do any sort of replication with this article from 2019. Um, and it's really hard to determine what they actually synthesized or if they fell to their own biases um, because there's not really a clear description of, oh, these were all the variables interacting on this person's behavior and this is how we ran the test and control condition. All right, Joe, I'm gonna pause one more time because <laughs> I'm about to get into the really heated part of this. So any thoughts or input before I talk about my biggest issue with this article? Um. No, I mean, it's just amazing. Like there's a, just these different, uh, all these different areas that they could just do better. And, um, and I really feel like, like from listening to you that we need a lot more replication in these studies. We need uh, more people to, uh, to replicate these studies and also, uh, to conduct their own studies to really see what uh, processes or what technology is the best or the most beneficial for our learners. Yep. We do, and we're going to talk about that too. What's the future research that we need to have? Okay, so my biggest article, our biggest issue with this article, the 2019 article that we're talking about, was there was no treatment no treatment provided whatsoever. So who cares how any of these things compare if no treatment is being provided? And you're telling me in 2019, when we have all of this research on function-based treatment, that there are real humans who are engaging in problem behavior. And if you look at this article, experienced upwards of 100 sessions of analysis with no treatment provided, and no analysis of the effectiveness of the treatment based on what they were put through. I get it. I understand. Back in the 80s, back in the early 90s, shoot, even back in early 2000, we could potentially justify people experiencing these different conditions with, you know, the aim of we need to improve the array of treatments available to address challenging behavior. But we have hundreds of articles in our field now showing effective treatment for challenging behavior based on the different functions. And Hanley's lab is, has tons of articles now as well showing effective treatment prior to even assessing function, but also once you've synthesized function. So I don't understand what justification there is from an ethical standpoint that someone would go through 100 sessions of analysis to what? Support my that like my ego like i don't i just don't get that and of course i'm sure that's not you know what how greer and fisher and them are seeing this but that's what's happening here these are human beings they may have disabilities they may be engaging in challenging behavior but who are we to put them through all of this extra i'm gonna say a swear word real quick shit just to prove that like a functional analysis 
may be more effective, not even more effective, but that a functional analysis will identify a different function than a PFA, Fun like a traditional functional analysis versus a PFA. How does that benefit this person that's participating in this study and experiencing these sessions? I, I fail to see, and you know, people can contact me and tell me I'm wrong, but I fail to see what benefit this serves for that individual who went through 100 sessions of analysis with no treatment provided in that. Um, so I'm gonna go on a little bit back to my notes and stop trailing, but, but. for me, <laughs> I don't care what the analysis says. It is not humane at this point in what we know about our science to keep putting people through these analyses and affecting their learning histories for someone's ego. I don't understand how they're getting IRB approval, um, and I'm going to default to Hanley's research every time because in their research, real behavior change is happening after five or less analysis sessions. When you look at the, this article, the, the 2019 article from Greer and Fisher and colleagues, if you compare the PFA conditions to the FA conditions, even in their own study where they don't even seem to have a good grasp on the PFA, there's less sessions that were done. But if you take that and compare it to Hanley or Slayton or Jessel or any of the other researchers coming out of Hanley's lab, it's literally five sessions or less. That means, you know, 30 minutes-ish of time that someone is being exposed to test and control to really say, yep, we've got this, let's go to treatment, versus 100 sessions in a traditional FA. So you're looking at, you know, hundreds of minutes, hours, days of someone going through these conditions while their behavior is being changed. This does not happen in a vacuum. We're creating new histories for these learners where they come into a study with whatever challenging behavior they have, but when we subject them to these sessions and these analyses, we're creating a brand new history for them. We could be creating a more well-established challenging behavior history. And I'll never forget learning about FA at FSU where we, you know, it was very well put into us that the FA, when there's, you know, challenging behavior happening, you have to make sure you're considering what effect running these conditions will have on that challenging behavior and whether or not it's justified. Is it justified to temporarily increase a challenging behavior to pinpoint function and create your treatment? Or is it too risky? to do that and should you just go straight to treatment based on your interviews and your observations and those types of things. Now we have a better way. We can look at the interviews and the observations and do a quick test to make sure we're right and then go into treatment. So I like this is the part about all of this research that if you can't tell already, really <laughs> gets me worked up because I don't like our field already has a bad enough reputation right now in certain communities for not being humane enough. And now we have researchers who seemingly, because of their own egos, are studying challenging behavior and subjecting people to hundreds of sessions. Um, I just don't get it. I don't understand how that can be, how anyone can ethically do that at this point with, with where we are in our field. So that's, no, my, that's my big one. No, that's so unethical. And I, I can't imagine trying to run a hundred a hundred sessions just to pinpoint something. Right. Um, we don't even do that in the school system. Like if if we would run a traditional FA with a hundred sessions in the in the school system, we would end up getting sold, sued by the parents. Because that I mean, even if they consented, that's just so inhumane. It's not practical. 
Um, and yeah, you develop a whole new repertoire of uh, behaviors because of um, your uh, just because of the FA yep. being uh, exposed to that. And that's my major concern about FAs, like traditional FAs. So, you know, you hit you you hit the nail on the head. I think with that argument. Yeah. And I, and I know like people who especially are more in like the research realm and not in practitioners, you know, boots on the ground at people's homes, working in schools, they, again, we all have different histories. So for them that, you know, the reinforcers and the motivators and in the, the outcomes for them are more about like, well, I can create this really well-controlled study and show this data. And I've talked about it in a bunch of different venues, but at what cost? right? Like we're well yes. past the point in our field. All fields went through it, you know, with like, especially like psychology when lobotomies were happening and we already talked yeah. about medicine and some of the treatments that would happen there. Sure. Fields go through like certain growth points and like and moments of discovery where we're looking at what would work best, but we're past that point. It's 20 years past that point. Yeah. And not only are we past that point of needing to publish research just to publish it on the effectiveness of function-based treatment, but we're past the point of doing, like you said, hundreds of sessions, especially when Hanley's research is showing you could figure it out in five sessions or less. So when we have that kind of technology available to us, at what point do we justify, well, I still needed to run a hundred sessions, you know, because what? <laughs> <laughs> like what, where is that, like what, at what cost do we justify that um, person? And again, the challenging behavior that was occurring, it doesn't mean it was occurring in all 100 of those sessions, but we're still exposing them not only to these sessions that could create new learning repertoires, but that's delaying their treatment, right? So if yes. I can figure out what the treatment should be after five sessions, awesome. How long are we prolonging 100 sessions to treatment for someone who's engaging in challenging behavior outside of our sessions every day? That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand how that can be justified. And I really hope that, you know, the, the whatever groups are, um, you know, we need to have philosophical doubt. We need to be skeptical. And so if you want to explore these advancements that are being made in treating function um, in a way like that's faster and more practical, awesome, but do it in a way that's humane. And that actually answers questions of, that we need to have answered. And we'll talk about what some of those questions might be from the practitioner standpoint, but don't just keep replicating functional analysis research that we've had in our field for 20, 30 years. That doesn't, well, actually 40 years almost at this point. Like that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, okay. So now that that heated piece is over, I have a few more just, you know, comments about this article. So again, I already sort of pointed this out, but they claimed that their, the traditional FA identified function in 11 out of 12 participants. But again, if you look at the data streams in the study, it suggests otherwise, but they don't tell what criteria they were using to decide the clear, um, that there was a clear function present. Many of the cases they said there was a clear function, the paths are not clear at all. And I was so heated up by this article <laughs> that when I read it, I actually started making like tables and charts to like, you know, analyze it. Those of you don't know, I used to be a debater. So that's just like, I just do that. I'm like, oh, I need to figure out, you know, what you're saying, is it actually true or not? So 
Um, so I'll include that in the show notes. It may not make any sense to anybody, but I did make a table that says, <laughs> like, you know, for participant one, these are the things that are, that I see, you know, and I would love, absolutely love for any listeners who read this and see differently than me to contact me so we can discuss it further because these are just my opinions and my perceptions of what's happening and I can very well be wrong. And I would love to have a discussion with someone who has really, you know, looked at this and, and thinks differently um, about it. At the end of the yeah. article, they discuss more about the observation and interview piece of, of how they set that up. And they indicate that Dr. Jessel told them progressing to the test and control condition requires some level of control over the problem behavior and the observation. And they state, um, quote, future researchers should pay careful attention to whether caregivers report putative reinforcement contingencies to occur in isolation or in combination and use this information accordingly when developing the test and control conditions of the ISCA. And then my thought was, how in the world did you do <laughs> this study without understanding that until the end? How do you set out to compare PFA slash ISCA to traditional FA and you don't even understand that that's the whole point of the PFA is to figure out <laughs> 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 testing in isolation or in combination. So I don't, it's like, have, did you even read the research? Like, have you done any sort of deep dive into really understanding what you're trying to study? Or did you just think you had an idea about it and like hit the ground running? To me, it seems like they thought they had an idea about it and hit the ground running. Like you cannot possibly conclude at the end of your study in 2019, keep in mind that, um, that they were researching this in 2016. Now, obviously it takes a while for things to get published. And they may have, you know, started this research before Hanley, you know, fully published all the things that he's published. But if you're setting out to like, you know, explore something and try to replicate and extend research that a different lab is doing, usually they're willing to like talk to you about that and provide you training on it and give you information and answer your questions. So I don't, and maybe I'm just misunderstanding this, but I don't understand why those conversations weren't had with Dr. Jessel or Dr. Hanley before doing the study as opposed to afterwards when it, when it didn't work. <laughs> Do and your again, research, right? Right. And then that also, again, you know, begs the question about these poor participants who apparently went through all of this without the researchers even understanding what they were doing. Uh, that also is an issue, of course, for me. Um, and then lastly, they stated that they combined the open under interview with the observation, but their table shows that they didn't. If you look at the table that they have in the article, um, it doesn't, it, they don't do the observation the way Hanley's lab has been doing it. So again, I, there's just a lot of like assertions and statements made that are either not true or they're just assertions with no evidence to support them. So when reading this article, um, I think that's important to keep in mind. A, a lot of the people that I've met who would be more from like the Fisher Greer traditional FA camp have read this research um, but you, but when you ask them about it, they're, they either haven't really read Hanley's stuff, um, or they don't read it with a critical eye. So it's that similar, like what I see on um, Facebook a lot with like political debates where it's like, if someone's a Republican, then they like have all these critiques about Democrats, but don't apply that same critical thought, you know, to Republicans and vice versa. So it's kind of like this us versus them mentality, mm -hmm. which again, we're a science that should not exist, right? We should be seeking the truth and seeking what would be most effective for our learners, 
not just going based off of our histories of, well, this is how I've always done it. So I'm gonna prove that this is the best way. All right, any more thoughts about my critiques of this article before we move on who wins the debate? <laughs> well, for those listeners who are listening to this podcast, um, what would you suggest um, our field should do? Uh, now that we have inf this information, now we know, you know, now we have a really good critique of what happened in the article and the articles that were presented. Where do you think this should take us in, the, in our field? Okay, well, that actually is the next question. So I'll just go into that. So like who wins the debate basically yeah. is where I was going. So, um, you know, I obviously have my opinions on things. I don't think there's a winner right now. Um, I think that there is a loser in the sense of if people just keep studying the same crap over and over again, that, that our, our learners and the people we're trying to serve are going to lose big time. Um, so what I would say like next steps and like what our listeners hopefully could take away from this, um, right now, at least based on my understanding of the research being done that was published by Fisher in 2016 and Greer in 2019 and any other colleagues that fall under that camp, they don't seem to understand how to implement the practical functional assessment properly. Um, simply, simply publishing tons of functional analyses doesn't make them an authority to do these comparisons. So sure, they'd be an authority to run the, the traditional FA part of this research, but if they're going to, to you know, try to do comparisons, they need to put forth the effort to really understand the advancements and the new processes that are being used. Um, they need to, people need to set their egos aside and focus on treatment, which is what I've been seeing happen out of, um, Dr. Hanley's group. Um, I've tried a few times to have discussions about this <laughs> it's, you know, this is the work I'm doing. This is the research I'm doing. Uh, there, there, it's hard to get anyone to like, come on from the different research groups to actually talk about it, which is, I mean, it's good. They're focusing on the treatment and not trying to set up, you know, a public debate about it. But in the yeah. articles, it's clear, at least from the Fisher and Greer side, that there, there, is, there are attempts to be kind of um, negating the work that Hanley's doing. So I would say, ultimately, what needs to happen in our field right now is we need to develop some sort of decision tree. And I talk about this in the Challenging Behavior webinar as well. But it seems that uh, research is needed to empirically validate the new steps. We've learned new things about the FBA process given Hanley's recent work and his publication. So the phases that I am picturing based on the work that has been done in years prior with um, Dr. Fisher and Dr. Wada and even Dr. Hanley and all of the researchers that have studied FBAs and FAs you know, for the last 40 years I would picture something like, is, behavior, is basic behavior management occurring in the environment? If not, we would train on that first because challenging behaviors may go away. And I think you could probably speak to that from a school setting and just like the feasibility of running, even just like getting information for function-based treatment from like an FBA standpoint. Um, sometimes it's not possible. <laughs> yeah, so, it's <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's just not possible. I mean, sometimes. Right. Yeah. So and then does the person that you're, you know, that you're looking at that has challenging behavior, do they tolerate things like denial, waiting, other eggshell areas? Um, if not, then we would train those first and challenging behaviors may go away. 
technically we could be doing one and two at the same time. I know that this probably seems more like behavior modification and like a step backwards, but our research in the field is showing that these are common issues. We have the, the article that was published by Ella Rosales um, that shows um, the, the big four preventative things and that's from um, that was published in BAP in 2018, talking about the big four, like these are four preventative things that we could be looking at to help address challenging behavior based on their work as practitioners. We also have just my own experience as a practitioner, like these are always things that we come into contact with. You can see it in the different practitioner assessments that have been made, like the essential for living, the inventory of good learner repertoires, the barriers assessment from the VBMAP. These are things that we encounter all the time, even outside mm -hmm. of our field, there's from an autism perspective, there's the CERTS model, which is social communication, emotional regulation, and transactional support created by Dr. Amy Weatherby and Barry Present. that is not necessarily strictly behavior analytic, but the things that they look at in there, it all goes down this path as well. So these are things that are encountered regularly with the learners we're trying to serve. Um, so just like other skill sets that we address like motor imitation and receptive and expressive identification and all of those types of things, wouldn't it just make sense to have that as part of our process from the beginning, get those things taken care of and then sort of see where we are. So um, for me, if, um, if an FA was, it would be done before these two things happened, then we might, it might not even be accurate because, mm -hmm. um, you know, those things could be, those skill deficits essentially and environmental setup could be contributing to the challenging behavior at such a high level, it wouldn't even matter what the function is. So, yeah. you know, why not take care of those two things first? Then if the challenging behavior is still persisting, we would do our functional analysis. That would help streamline things and make it more effective in terms of like putting people through these conditions and potentially increasing their challenging behavior. We would have more justification if you're like a teacher in a school and you've already addressed you know the environmental classroom management and you've addressed the eggshell type skills and you have a learner who's still engaging in challenging behavior it's a lot easier to justify needing to yeah. run some analysis conditions than just saying like you know hit the ground running i need to do this and people looking at you like wait you want to temporarily increase <laughs> this challenging <laughs> behavior to get rid of it i don't understand um if the behavior like i said if the behavior is still occurring we could conduct the fba um, of course i would argue within that fba process that using the practical functional assessment would be most appropriate um, but that still needs a little bit more empirical validation validation to flat out say that um, and having some type of analysis before all of this regarding the severity of the behavior because it would potentially be a whole different ball game or it may require training on safety procedures before any other training and intervention happens, which would likely be the case um, even given current methods too. So we just need more research done. Like that's my idea of a decision tree, but that would yeah. need to be studied, right? We need some component analyses done and some work done on, wow, we have all of these different technologies available to us with function-based treatment and functional analysis. Like how can we you know, take all of those things that we know about it now and, and really start streamlining and making this the most efficient process possible. Um, I'll and pause there. I have a few research ideas too, in addition to that, but I'll pause there and see what thoughts you have. No, I totally agree. Like uh, I know in my classroom and just in my experience working in public education, uh, a lot of those, uh, 
areas like denial, waiting, and other eggshell areas, those are, you know, about 70% of our issues in the classroom right now. Um, and that's where I'm focusing on teaching my, uh, learn my students um, how to uh, tolerate denial, how to wait, how to increase their waiting time. And those are the areas that I'm seeing that uh, I'm working on right now before I go to um, a more in-depth process yeah. with them. Yeah. And I think that's the most humane way of working with kit, uh, our learners. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that's a big thing about, for me, kind of where we could go with this. Um, one of the things that actually just came up this week on in the Do Better Movement Facebook group, um, you know, th there's a ton of research that can be <laughs> on challenging behavior, but a recent post on the Do Better Facebook group brought to light some of these issues. Somebody was posting about they're working in a school setting and, you know, needing to, to kind of put some parameters about around their FBA process. And as we all know, it's federal law that FBAs need to be conducted, but that's, that's all it says. There's no yeah. best practice guideline. I mean, there might be best practice guidelines that various people have put out groups, research groups, or, you know, parent groups or things like that. But there isn't like from like a research standpoint, anything that I'm aware of. And, um, and then a, thing that I hadn't really thought about as much before that came up was one of the commenters was saying, you know, when they have to go to due process or go to court over function-based treatment, they tend to have to rely on using like the FAST or the MASS, which are both interview-based um, mm -hmm. ways of, of looking at function that have very low reliability. So, but they put numbers to it. So they found like in their arguments in court that that works better. So why are we not doing more research to, to, to create ways of explaining what we do to the public, especially the courts, so that we can do what's effective? So basically, people were kind of default saying, like, I know these things aren't that reliable and, you know, more effective things are out there for actually developing the treatment. But this is what I have to use in court because the, the judge doesn't understand anything else. And it's like, whoa, wait, <laughs> our learners are potentially suffering so that you can win a court case. Um, but if they don't win the court case, then the learner doesn't get any function-based treatment. Yeah. You know? So, you know, that's obviously a big area that could be studied. You know, how do we work with uh, the systems that exist that would be approving our function-based treatments and disseminate information to them about what we're doing and what's most effective and efficient and also looking at what exists in those systems and what they tend to understand and creating similar um, methods so that we can sort of meet them halfway, right? Like if this is what a courtroom would understand, then we should be creating technologies in that, you know, that are effective, but that the courtroom would understand. Um, obviously feasibility in various environments. So which assessment yeah. and analysis, analysis methods are most feasible or acceptable in different environments? Um, you know, again, I said like the PFA from the research that Hanley's published showing it's so super effective, but if nobody else can replicate that, that's an issue, right? Or if it only works in their, in like a center and it doesn't work in a school or it doesn't work in a home, um, or it's possible that like, you know, certain methods in a school would be better. Like we talked about with the classroom management and looking at those eggshell skills, that's going to be a lot easier probably to do in a school 
um, than, than just going straight into a full on like FBA, FA process. So looking at those different variables and like what's allowed or not mm -hmm. allowed instead of trying to fight the red tape and the powers that be that we tend to not have a lot of success with, look at what our environmental restrictions are and develop processes to, to fit that, you know, that can be effective and publish research to show that that's what happens. And I know that there's research out there on school-based functional assessment. Um, Dr. Mueller has done some research on that back in like the late 90s, early 2000s. But again, keeping up with, you know, the times. Yeah, <laughs> let's keep up with the times. <laughs> um, keeping up with the research. We could have like create decision tree type stuff. There's the Geiger article that has decision trees about escape behavior and like the different treatments available for that and how to decide which one to use. So creating similar things for different functions, but also just for the process in general, like I was talking about before, but having research to justify that those things work as practitioners, I can come up with all sorts of ideas and I can show you data that it worked with my student or my learner, but in, for the public at large, and again, if you're going to be in a court case or if you're arguing with insurance and that kind of thing, we all know we need the research to back it up. So yeah. there's all sorts of things that practitioners encounter. And this is one of the things that I think Hanley's doing a really good job with is he, you know, was a professor, he was a researcher, and they were starting to encounter issues when they would look more on the practitioner side of things. And instead of just staying in that ivory tower of research and saying, well, these are, the, but this is my line of research and this is how research works, he stepped out and said, okay, let's go to the practitioner side and get the research going there. And that's what we really need. We are an applied science, having a ton of research and, you know, isolated, um, very sterile environments doesn't do a whole lot. It, there's a necessary point in time for it to come up with initial ideas about things and demonstrate that certain you know, concepts or principles are really there <laughs> that teachers yeah. can actually do that. But then again, it doesn't matter if it happens in that isolated, sterile environment, we can't get it to happen in the real world. So we need a lot more research on what issues our practitioners facing and how do we address those. Um, one last thing that I'll say, and then I'll pause again, kind of bring this full circle. So at the beginning, I talked about one of the really interesting things with watching Awada present at FSU was how he synthesized the literature to come up with the traditional FA. The thing that strikes me so much about the work that Hanley and his colleagues are doing is he has received criticism from people like Awada Fisher. When Hanley was a student, and they were the ones, Awada and Fisher and the people in the generation before him synthesizing the research and making these really cool advancements in our field, that was fine. But now that Hanley's in their position and he's the professor and he's the researcher and he's synthesizing from the past, all of a sudden it's a problem? I don't understand that, you know? So yeah. that's kind of a huge contradiction that I see that like, it's like all hail Awada, for synthesizing that research from before and like recognizing these different conditions existed and coming up with this very structured way of finding function and then doing function-based treatment. And now that Hanley's synthesizing all of that research that came from Awada to create even better, potentially better and more effective methods, that's all of a sudden an issue. <laughs> and I just don't understand that, you know, as a practitioner, again, the whole argument, same as like the VBRFT podcast that we did, like let's study goes aside. Let's try to put aside our histories of like, this is what we studied and found and realize we're a science and we're progressive. 
and we move forward? And how can we continue to synthesize and continue to move forward? And it's all for the benefit of the people we serve. That's my, my closing thought there. So Joe, I know I just talked again for a long time. <laughs> Do you have anything to add, especially from like, you know, issues you encounter in the school setting? I mean, the biggest issue that I run into is like, you know, for us in the school setting, um, I know there's, I, I, I know there's a lot of research out there. I know there's a better process for um, conducting FBAs and FAs, um, but it's not disseminated to the school setting. And um, what, yeah, what, when you were saying that, how they have to defend their decision for a function-based um, treatment using the FAST, that's what we're using in school systems now. I mean, we're still using the FAST. We're focusing on interviews and observations. Um, we're not even touching an actual, like a traditional FA um, or even a PFA um, in, the school in the school setting um, just because of, A, it's not disseminated to the people act that actually makes de decisions in the school setting. Um, we're not, um, <clears throat> there's not enough resources. Um, and there's not enough, I mean, there's not enough like time or, uh, money to conduct all this either. So, um, but I know there's a need for it as well. Yeah. So it's like, so as, uh, as a educator, it's like, so what's the best course of action? You know, I know, um, I know Hanley's work would be beneficial for, um, the school setting, but at the same time, it's like it needs to be disseminated, uh, disseminated to us. And actually, um, it, he needs to come. I would really love to see something that we could implement into the school setting, but how to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So all, all of those things. Um, well, I really hope that everyone enjoyed this discussion. I know, like I said, I'm not shy about my opinions on this topic. <laughs> Clearly, I'm super excited about the work that Hanley's doing, and I don't want it to seem like I don't appreciate and respect the, the research from Awada and Fisher and Greer and all of the researchers and challenging behavior that we've had over the past 40 years and, and beyond. Um, but again, I'm just, you know, going to continue to advocate that we need to keep moving forward and progressing as a science and, you know, come up whatever conclusions you're going to come up with about this topic, but please do the research. Read all of the articles in this area. Don't just listen to me and say, well, Megan said, you know, this is what it is. I don't want you to do that either. I, yeah. I have my opinions and I state my opinions about it, but that doesn't mean they're correct. Um, and especially until we have more research on it. So hopefully this, um, opened up some, you know, new thoughts or areas to look into for anyone that's listening. And I definitely welcome if anyone reads the articles themselves and comes up with some different conclusions that, you know, they, they share them with us. And I know I spent a ton of time talking about the 2019 article. Obviously I could do the same thing with each of Hanley's research articles as well. That's un like an unfortunate, uh, thing that I do, it, it sometimes comes off as being overly critical, but I don't just take things as they're written. I have to tear them apart. But the point for today's talk, it was to really key in on for the 2019 article, because there are so many assertions made with no support provided that I don't think 
generally speaking, most people would read the article and even pick up on those things. So I really wanted to cover that for today. But I, again, anybody who wants to discuss it further, feel free to touch base with me. My contact information is everywhere. So um, yeah, so with that, I'll say thank you for listening to today's episode and go forth on your quest and do better.